0: I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Mission. Where is Nancy? Those were the words David DePap reportedly shouted before he bludgeoned Paul Pelosi with a hammer. DePap was looking for Paul's wife, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. The attack happened in the couple's San Francisco home early last Friday. Since then, chilling new details have emerged. While filing attempted kidnapping and assault charges on Monday, federal prosecutors said that DePap was looking to hold the House Speaker hostage. They say he wanted to speak with Nancy Pelosi and that if she lied, which he expected her to, he was going to break her kneecaps. Court records said the attack was an effort to, quote, show other members of Congress there were consequences to actions. DePap could face up to life in prison if convicted of the slate of charges from both federal and local prosecutors. Where is Nancy echoes what was shouted on January 6, 2021, when insurrectionists stormed the U.S. Capitol, hunting for the Speaker. Oh, Nancy! Nancy! Political violence has taken center stage once again, just one week before the midterm elections. Today on Fifth Emission, Dr. Garen Wintemute joins me to talk about what the Pelosi attack means for Americans. He's an emergency room physician and also the director of UC Davis's Violence Prevention Research Program. Wintamu and his team recently conducted a first-of-its-kind nationwide survey. It measured how willing Americans were to engage in specific political violence scenarios. He's here to discuss the findings from that survey and how it may illuminate some of the horrifying details of the attack on Paul Pelosi and what the call to action should be now to prevent political violence in the future. Dr. Garen Wintemute, welcome to Fifth Emission.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, Garen, some really troubling details are emerging from last week's attack on Paul Pelosi, in particular how violent it was. Now, one in five Americans believe that violence can at least sometimes be justified to advance a political objective, according to a study that you led That's pretty shocking. And this latest event is echoing that research. What was your reaction to the Paul Pelosi news as someone who's been thinking about political violence
1: really deeply? First, I was very much saddened by it. Um, We need to remember that a man was was badly hurt in targeted violence. I was not at all surprised. Our research and work done by others who've been in the field much longer is pointing toward an increase in political violence that we've been observing with next week, early November, being an extremely high-risk time.
0: And I'd love to try to connect some potential dots between your research and what we're learning about David DePapp, the suspect in the Paul Pelosi attack. Now, federal court filings on Monday found that Pap planned to hold Speaker Nancy Pelosi hostage since she's, quote, leader of the pack of lies told by the Democratic Party how does that align with what your research found when it comes to how many Americans view the government at the moment?
1: So, one thing we're seeing in, in the language of that indictment or complaint is that there's some emulation going on. There's echoing of themes from January 6th. What we found in our research and others have found, and this won't surprise any of your listeners, there's a real tendency toward conspiracy thinking among MAGA Republicans, for example about 30% endorse elements of conspiracy thinking such as the Great Replacement. A high percentage endorse the core elements of the QAnon delusion complex, which to remind people, it's a substantial portion of people believe that government and social institutions are controlled by a group of satanic pedophiles who traffic children for sex. That sounds like nightmare stuff. And Here we are on Halloween. The nightmare is out among us. Mm -hmm.
0: Now, an easy explanation, and you've just pointed that out, MAGA Republicans, the Capitol insurrection. A lot of people can point to former President Donald Trump and the disinformation that he spread about the election and among other things as a cause. But I want to ask, is political polarization and oversimplification of the problem we have here? We're just we're hearing so much partisan finger pointing right now.
1: So it's an oversimplification if we attribute everything to political polarization. Political polarization is a fact. Beyond polarization, there is quite simply an increasing acceptance of violence as a means of solving political problems, not just in the United States. There have recently been unprecedented increases in rates of some types of crime, homicide, for example. There is an absolutely unprecedented increase in purchasing of firearms that began two and a half years ago at the start of the COVID pandemic and continues today. It's the confluence of these trends that has people very much concerned. We are engaged in a huge social experiment right now that's going to answer the question, what happens in a society that is increasingly polarized, increasingly uncertain about its future, mistrustful of its institutions, mistrustful of its fellow citizens, angry at itself when you throw an unprecedented number of guns into the mix. We we are living through the time that will provide the answer to that question.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, America has had a very violent history. What do you think makes this moment different than the past?
1: Well, it's not unique. We all tend to think of the time in which we live as somehow unique, but we've experienced times of of widespread violence before in in the 60s, certainly in the 1850s and 1860s and in the 1870s through 90s and beyond as Jim Crow was established. This is the latest incarnation, if you will, of a tendency in the United States to see things in a polar point of view, to stigmatize, to dehumanize the opposition and, and to act from that perspective.
0: Mm -hmm. And of course, the role of social media disinformation is kind of a unique factor here in this, right?
1: Yes. So that's something that's new. And I am not an expert in in social media. But yes, that's the wild card. Mm -hmm. Um, People who have worked in this field for, for decades identify this as something really new, that social media allows misinformation and disinformation to spread with tremendous efficiency allows organization around disinformation to happen with tremendous efficiency, which gives bad actors unprecedented power to manipulate people. And we're seeing some of that. Ideally, there is equally power to move people based on real information, but that's not what we've been seeing so far. Mm
0: -hmm. And while we're still learning details about Depap's motivations here, there is also something about people feeling empowered to take action in their own hands. That seems to also be a facet of this, right?
1: It does. The pandemic gets some of, if you will, the, the blame for this. We've been isolated from each other. We've been absent the sort of informal controls that society imposes because we haven't been socially um, organized and functioning in the past two years the way we were before. We've been siloed. We've been in our own little social media echo chambers. There hasn't been the village taking care of us. And Mm -hmm. absent those soft restraints, people are moving ahead to act on their beliefs, however delusional those beliefs might be.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, I want to point out another finding from the survey that's perhaps the most worrisome. 42% 42% of respondents said that having a strong leader for America is more important than having democracy. Now, Garen, are Americans looking for authoritarian leaders? What is happening?
1: I drafted that phrase in in the questionnaire and sitting right where I'm sitting right now. And I, I remember a real feeling of foreboding, just putting those words on the screen.
0: Mm.
1: It's 40% agree at least somewhat with that statement. But 20% of Americans and 30% of MAGA Republicans agree strongly with that statement, which in my point of view is offering people quite a clear choice. Given the choice, is it strong leader or democracy? And a sizable minority is going for strong leader. And in the case of MAGA Republicans, I think we get to guess who who that strong leader is. Mm. This potentially growing preference for authoritarianism in the United States does not bode well for democracy here. And democracy researchers have made that point very emphatically.
0: More with Garen wintemu after a quick break. If you're feeling like things are pretty bleak, Garen will share some good news with you and what solutions to political violence might look like. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Garen Wintemute, the study that you led at the UC Davis Violence Prevention Research Program found that many Americans agreed with the statement that having a stronger leader in America is more important than democracy itself— pretty dismal survey results, does that mean condemning political violence needs a stronger argument and that saying it's a threat to democracy isn't enough?
1: Correct. Let me let me pivot. Let's talk about some of the good news here that I sure. think <laughs> so because there is good news. hard though it may be to see. I'm glad. <laughs> um, yeah. Eighty percent of the people in our survey, roughly, I'm mean going to round the numbers here, re- rejected political violence altogether, not just in general, But we offered people 17 specific political objectives. Well, how about now? Would you use violence here? And 80% of people rejected political violence altogether, over and over and over again. And of the people who endorsed political violence, a huge majority, again about 80%, said, but I wouldn't want to do it myself. They they had no personal willingness to get Mm. involved. So the good news here is that the vast majority of us are not fans of political violence. The challenge is to do something about that, to reestablish as as affirmatively as we can, that this is not a society that tolerates political violence. Mm -hmm. Because again, the downside is even if most supporters of political violence wouldn't want to have anything to do with it themselves, their support creates a climate that facilitates violence by those who don't hold those scruples that are willing to move ahead, as Mr. DePay allegedly did. There really is only a small percentage of the country who will say, yep, I'm ready to throw down on the order of 5% or so. So it's about 2.5 million people per percentage point. So we're talking about millions of people who are willing to say they're willing to engage in political violence. The way to avoid it Is for the vast majority of us who are not to, if you will, put our foot down and make it very clear that that won't be tolerated.
0: Now, as you mentioned, we all know we're just a week away from midterms. A lot of political leaders are on edge right now. That includes San Francisco Mayor Lennon Breed, who has expressed her own personal concern, Senator Scott Weiner. Do you think, I mean, we're all talking about political violence right now. Is the problem that we're not taking it seriously enough or are we having the wrong conversation about
1: it? Well, we're taking it seriously a little bit late in the game. Political violence affects us all. And look at this conversation we're having. Society is on edge now, maybe not the personal risk, but here's an election coming and it's becoming an occasion for fear, not an occasion for celebration of of some of what makes America the the great country it is. The broader Mm -hmm. conversation that we need to have as a society is, as, as you've sort of led us toward. Is why is this happening? What are the things that underlie political violence, that make it seem necessary to people? And and broadly speaking, they are the same things that underlie interpersonal violence, or for that matter, suicide. And as a violence epidemiologist, I, I see common ground here. The things that make violence seem necessary add up to a lack of any sense of a future that I, I have in some way or other been disenfranchised, I'm isolated, maybe I have some personal risk factors, but I see society as structured to exclude me. And nonviolent means of redressing this problem are closed off to me. So what do I have to lose? Mm -hmm. Whichever type of violence we're thinking about, we need to think about how to restructure our society to make violence seem less necessary to people. That's the work of generations, and we have days before the election. So there are both short-term, medium-term, and long-term solutions that we need to put in play simultaneously.
0: And on that note, many people have seized on this troubling event to talk about the way that crime is being managed by San Francisco leaders. The mental health history of DEPAP is being closely examined. You're alluding to this, but it seems really important that when we're thinking about solutions, That we think about the nuances here and not just use blanket generalizations at what's needed, right?
1: No question. Police, I think, are the the first people to say, we are not going to arrest and incarcerate ourselves out of this problem. They have a specific job to do, and we can discuss, maybe disagree about what we think about that job. Society has chosen, I do not agree with this choice, to, if you will, delegate to the police the job of see the air quotes here, controlling crime. It's a societal responsibility. It's not a law enforcement responsibility. And we we as a society are shirking our responsibility. Mental health care is necessary because there's a moral imperative to provide care to those who suffer. Mental illness is not a strong risk factor for violent perpetration. Mental illness is a risk factor for being a victim of violence or for perpetrating self-harm, suicide. But there are many other both personal and, if you will, social determinants of violence that are simply beyond the capabilities of the police.
0: Mm-hmm. And it always seems like the long-term solutions to mitigate these kinds of risks is the hardest thing to solve, right? Short-term solutions, more enforcement, more security, more funding resources for that kind of stuff is easier to come by. But the long-term strategies always seem kind of tough here, yes. right?
1: Yes, the long-term strategies include, by no means an all-inclusive list, include better education, job security, income security, housing security, a sense of living in a society in which one, whoever one might happen to be, in which one has a stake, in which one has something to lose if one decides to to commit violence. That's society's work. That's not law enforcement's work. It's work of all of us. And I agree. Um, This is a characteristic, I think, of the species, unfortunately. We don't see the immediate short-term benefit to us, so we kick it down the road. And we've been doing that for centuries. And sort of like strain developing along a boundary between tectonic plates, strain accumulates and something really bad happens because we don't relieve the strain. We don't create the structures that allow society to include its members and function smoothly.
0: And this kind of political violence, I mean, I'm a woman of color. I'm worried about who else is vulnerable to this brand of violence. Reports have found that DePap, the Pelosi attack suspect, had shared a lot of hateful views towards people of color, women, Jewish people, among others. The study that you led found that more than 41% of respondents agreed that quote, Native-born white people are being replaced by immigrants in America. This isn't just about politics.
1: It, It goes deeper than politics. It's about disparity. Violence and disparity are linked along all the axes on which disparity exists. You mentioned gender and ancestry, but also along social class lines, national origin lines, gender identity and sexual orientation, all of those, I, I think we have an inherent characteristic as a species to differentiate ourselves from others, to establish lines of power and advantage to self along those lines. So the problem with the structures that create our and any other society is that they tend to be set up to, to, to benefit the people who create them, not to benefit everybody. And and in this country at this time, the manifestation is as you describe it.
0: hmm now, your study is very sobering. This latest news is very sobering. Where do you go from here? You lead the center that studies violence so closely. How do we advance this towards solutions?
1: Yep. Um, and I've been doing it for 40 years and I'm optimistic. And what drives that optimism is you and I have been have been having a conversation about all the terrible things that people do to each other and think about each other. But we could also be having a conversation about all the wonderful things that people do for each other and think about each other. I'm a clinician, I'm a physician, and every shift I work, I see evidence of humanity's humanity, if you will, on the on the positive side. I'm not willing to give up on us and our future. And that's what keeps me going. And I'll, I'll sort of personalize it and oversimplify it um, this way. If the good guys give up, the bad guys win.
0: Dr. Garen Wintemu is an emergency room physician and a firearm violence researcher. He's also the director of the UC Davis Violence Prevention Research Program. Learn more about their work at health.ucdavis.edu VPRP. For ongoing coverage on the attack against Paul Pelosi and other stories about political violence and the upcoming midterms, visit sfchronicle.com and the Chronicle app. Thank you to King Kaufman for editing this episode and to you for listening.